episode of the Mark Gross podcast. Wow, you know, I don't normally do solo episodes on Mondays, um, but due to a calamity of factors, I decided, hey, this seems to be the best idea. I kind of like this idea. And I'm one of those people that just sort of follows what I feel. And I felt inspired and called to have a conversation with you and share a little more about my story and some of the most impactful moments of my life. I've been asked a lot, like, what is your work experience? Where did you come from? How did you start creating this? Create the love thing. I want to share that with you. I come from a very interesting background that probably would not have you think that I would be sitting here today with a podcast that I've cried on. I definitely would not have ever guessed that I would have cried on stages and cried on a podcast. I got to tell you, the episode Adulting is Hard, I believe is probably the best performing episode, which really is telling that we all have a desire to be seen and see and to be vulnerable. And that's the thing that connects us. You know, perfection doesn't fucking connect us. That's, it's all smoke and mirrors, you know, like the highlight reels on social media. And really, life isn't always positive. And that's a good thing. We need contrast. We need experience. We need more than just happiness. You know, I was really thinking about this the other day that life can be bad, you know, and things can be chaotic and we can be hurting. But on a general level, we can still have gratitude. We can have gratitude for the extent, extent of our pain, the extent of our ability to feel. And that's a really challenging concept to sort of understand because you know, we are taught that positive emotions mean you have a positive life, that if you're happy, that's good. And if you're not, you need a pill. And I'm not to say that there isn't a reason or a time for the movement away from negative emotion, but negative emotion is just coded that way. We've just said it's negative. Of course, we want more of the good and that's evolutionary. That's why we crave sugar and things that hit our dopamine centers and the honeymoon phase of our relationships. But we also need stillness. We need calm. We need a balance of all the things. And when we come back into that balance, it's because we are accepting that life is a range of experiences. It has all the ups and all the downs and all the in-betweens. And I've really been reminded of that over and over again as I explore this experience. I was really, in a lot of ways, brought to my knees in my breakup that it connected me to, as I've said before, the impermanence of life, the impermanence of this experience. And it reminded me of death in a, a lot. I was thinking a lot about mortality and endings because, it, you know, all things are deaths. All endings are deaths, but they're not mortal deaths, you know, but they're the death. It's like when all of a sudden we build amazing boundaries, we have now the part of us that didn't have boundaries before who danced in a different story has to die. And that part of us often felt safe, even though it might not have felt good. And so I thought to myself, this sort of brought me to a different way of thinking about when we make vows and we say, till death do us part. And I thought, man, there are so many people who are in relationships that they promised forever when they were like 18 or 22 or 26, 
or just when they didn't know what they know today, when you're listening to this and you might just have a different level of awareness than you did, which you should. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to grow and expand is that you're going to learn more things. And those things you learn are going to be new tools in your toolbox and new moments of wisdom and experience that are going to allow you to make more empowered decisions, to make better decisions. And sometimes we're in life circumstances that those decisions that we made are not decisions we would make anymore. And I think this can be a really challenging, I don't think, I know this, this can be a really challenging thing when it comes to relationships because there's this idea that, well, that's what commitment is. You committed to a relationship. You committed. And that's true. And your relationship should never be a prison. You know, the truth is, is that we can come and go from all relationships at all times. So this idea of till death do us part, I sort of thought about it in a different way that like, what happens if it's actually the part of us that chose the relationship that dies? The part of us that didn't know as much as we know today. Like, what happens if it's that part of us? Then can we part? You know, there are so many different versions of us that will live throughout this lifetime and without dying. We will be born again over and over and over again. And Dr. Alexander Salman has a really beautiful quote where she talks about how you will fall in love many times and you will fall deeper and deeper in love with yourself, but your partner. And that might be the same person because they will be different throughout our lifetime as we will. And I think when we allow the space for our partner to change, the space for our partner to be different, the space for our partner to learn new things and, and just grow, we then allow the space for ourselves. Now, the majority of us enter relationship fearing that expansion, fearing that our partner is going to change and then it will mean that they leave us. And so we often become overtly controlling or our fear makes it so we actually shame their expansion or their new interests or the things that they're really starting to learn about. And that might be actually the experience we have of our partner too. But that's fear. Why would we not want our partner to pursue their dreams? Why would we not want that? Why would we not want us to have the opportunity to grow and change and pursue dreams. I remember thinking to myself in the past, like, it's so interesting that when people's relationships end, they start to do everything they love and chase towards dreams that they felt trapped from actually pursuing. You see so many people when their relationship ends that they experience freedom. Isn't that fascinating that we have this idea that we have to blow up our lives to be ourselves, that we have to change everything around us in order to change within us. But the change within us will change naturally what's around us. I mean, I think that's a very fascinating thing that when we are under old agreements of relationship, then we don't know how to change the agreements from within the relationship, so we often end them. Which is not to say that there are not appropriate times to end relationships. There certainly are. I've been really having this conversation a lot about the difference between fear and intuition. And it's been sitting in my thought process a lot, so I want to share it. And really often, fear and intuition can masquerade as the same thing. And what I mean by that is, 
when we're young and we grew up in a family that maybe had a lot of anger in a parent, let's just use that as an example, someone was an addict and unpredictable, then fear would say, get away from this. And intuition would say, get away from this. So when we're adults and we're in a relationship and we have fear or intuition and we're not sure and it's saying, leave this relationship or this relationship isn't for you, sometimes we'll leave that and make that decision and then we'll regret it and we'll wish we had stayed. But what just happened there, and sometimes we'll leave and we'll be like, whew, okay, like, wow, I needed to get out of that. That shit was crazy because now you're out of the pattern and fear and intuition both led you away in the right way. And although where it starts to differentiate is when we regret it and we wish we had made a different decision. So then we look back and we've now separated what fear and intuition are. We've now created a delineation between those two things that what I thought was intuition that pulled me away was actually fear of expansion, of growing, of being loved. I've certainly done this and I think most people will do this. And, but now here's the challenge is most of us regret that decision and we wish we could change it rather than showing up with the new knowledge today. You know, I find it fascinating. I've done this to myself that I would look back at mistakes I made in my life and I would be like, I can't believe you. Like, fucking idiot. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have been this way. But what I'm missing is that I only know that because I made that decision. I made that mistake. And so in that part where we shame a past version of ourselves, we are literally, we're shaming the part of us that woke us up. We're condemning the part of us that taught us the lesson. And I remember thinking about that. I was thinking about like 27-year-old me. I'm like, that was so stupid. And I remember 27-year-old me, I was in a meditation, and 27-year-old me was like, fuck you. Like the only reason you know that shit is because of what I did. And so now you're looking at me with your righteous judgmental eyes that you only can hold because of the pain I put us through. And so pain, when it invites wisdom and expansion, which it always does, if we don't listen to it and we regret it, then we can't hold, we can't hold the part that is so important for how we need to show up differently. So I invite you to ask the sticky moments of your life, what are you inviting from me? How would I prevent this from possibly happening again? How would you invite me to grow? Who would I be if I learned from you? And that's that simple shift of why did this happen to me to why did, the, how did, why did this happen for me? And when it goes for me, then now we're like, oh, all ways, all things that happen in our lives are inviting expansion. Of course, there's two views to this. There's the view that life is just fate and you can't control anything and so fuck it. You know, why would I learn from anything? Oh, everything happens for a reason. Like have some more weed, you know, go do some ayahuasca, buddy. But really it is that you have a choice. You can either see it as, you know, it's just life and fate or you can look at it and say, thank you. I'm going to grow because of you. Because in those two perspectives, if you take the first one, you're going to repeat your patterns. If you take the second one, you're going to get curious and you're going to look at the child within you that fucked up and say, I love you. Teach me. Invite me to grow. How can I be better? You know, romantic relationships are really the magnifying glass of what we suck at. But life delivers many lessons and many experiences. 
I have a few that I'm going to share with you that are sticky moments in my life. And they stayed with me in both positive and negative ways. I grew up with a father who was divorced before my mom. He and my sister with his first wife and my sister I grew up with for the majority of my childhood, the early part not, but um, eventually she, uh, I grew up with her and, and I have an older brother from my father's second marriage, my brother John, and he's 18 months older than me, so I'm the youngest. And my sister and my brother, we all grew up together. I never really thought about half-sister. That never was in my mind. So I want you to start to think about just your family system and what are the messages you might have received that are both positive and negative. You know, I um, I grew up in a, my father was very emotionally intelligent. My He would ask us questions about our heart and our breakups and all those things. I would say that for the most part, we grew up in a provider home standard sort of 19, I was born in 78, so I, I just turned 41 last week. And we grew up in what would be normal, I suppose, quote unquote. You know, my dad worked, he did research. My mom both raised us and studied and taught, and she's a linguist of so many languages. I was really very blessed that because she was an immigrant from Ireland, she had a, you know had some challenges integrating in the community, and that was a passion of hers. So we often, uh, when I was a kid, I can remember so many times having families from all over the world at our house for dinner to help integrate them, to invite them into the community and to be part of that. My mom has done such a beautiful job of that. So I was certainly born to a powerful woman too, who has a voice, who's a feminist by every design. And my parents taught me a lot of compassion for people I didn't know. I remember being a kid and being on the bus with my mom and my brother and my mom teaching us. It was so important that we got up from our seat to give it to people who needed it regardless of anything, to just always offer it to, to someone who was older than us, to anyone that just looked like they could use a rest. And that stuck with me my entire life. So, you know, think of some of the implicit messages. We receive implicit and explicit messages. So, you know, an explicit message might be someone in your family saying, never get divorced. And that's explicit, right? And then when you might want to get divorced or break up, it will maybe feel impossible to do because of what you were taught, that there's shame associated with making a choice of choosing yourself. It's more important. It can be more challenging to go against what the tribe believes rather than choose one's own desires and passions. Implicit messages might be something like, can you believe it? Aunt Teresa got divorced. Believe that. Going to hell. That's an implicit message to not get divorced because then you'll be talked about the same way Aunt Teresa was. So Here's some of the messages I received as a kid. One, I grew up Catholic. So one of the messages I received was, don't have sex before marriage, be afraid of your sexuality. Um, sex is something to not be taken lightly, which was a good message. Care about the people that you engage with intimately. But there was a real stop at intimately. You could kiss someone, but really the message I was taught that you shouldn't do any heavy petting. I mean, what an awful term heavy petting is right? Like, what is this, a golden retriever? Like, what is that? And it's not like they're teaching you how to do it, you know? There's no model for it because I'm at a Catholic school. It's like so much fear. And 
I, I mean, just by nature of my parents' relationship, my dad was divorced before my mom, so learned that divorce is okay. That inviting community and immigrants and people of all different races and colors and all the different things, cultures, religions, that message was really loud and clear. Be very open to be understanding, to seek curiosity. Um, I would say that the way that I observed my parents handle conflict did teach me withdrawing and defensiveness that I had to learn how to navigate. And in my own healing of my, I'm a recovering defender. That's what I like to call it. And the healing to defensiveness, if you know what that is, when you get reactive, responsive, you know, it usually is in a dance with criticism or we're just overtly sensitive to any feedback because our self-worth is always hovering in other people's words. So I would get reactive and shut down. And the antidote to it is saying, I can see some truth in what you're saying. Oh, God, that's like eating your shoe, let me tell you. Because it's fascinating, right? Because indefensiveness is a wall. When I get defensive, I build a wall that you can't get through. And so it shuts the relation, the, com, the communication down. And we don't go deeper than the limits of our reactivity. But on the other side of that, because all ways that we respond in conflict are really just ways of protecting ourselves. If we can learn how to get curious in the moment of flooding, of shutting down, of getting defensive, getting contemptuous, in all those moments, if we can take a pause and breathe, meditation is great for teaching this. So are cold showers, because cold showers, they basically send the message to your body, like your body goes, I'm going to die. This is cold. Is, uh, we're going to die, but you're not. And so when you can learn to breathe in that and stay in that, you are training yourself to breathe and stay in discomfort. Because when you're in a communication that is not dangerous, that is a regular communication of conflict and challenge with your partner or anyone, even at work or friends, and in those situations, our response usually brings us back to a certain age. So I usually ask people when they're flooded, or when you were in that moment, how old did you feel? Just go with the age that first comes to you. Go with the age that first comes to your mind. And it could be more than one age. And what you'll see is that the first moment you felt that, felt that way, maybe not understood, judged, not prioritized, not loved, not important, not safe, it will usually be the age that it first happened. Because that's when we learn the way of protecting ourselves. So all ways that we respond in conflict are really just ways of protecting ourselves from being hurt. So there are survival strategies. And that's why we need to have gratitude for them first. That's the compassion piece. And a really beautiful way to make your triggers more understood in relationship is actually to tell the story of how that first happened to your partner or to your friend or to whoever you're dealing with. And what that does is it builds compassion and empathy to your experience so that when their own reactivity is, because re that's the dance of relationship, right? Is to be art our wounds mash together perfectly. So, you know, if one person felt rejected and abandoned and the, then the other person probably shuts down in conflict and triggers rejection and abandonment. So they chase while the other person who withdraws probably has a sensitivity to being overwhelmed and criticized and smothered, right? So this is the dance of relationship. There's a great saying from Byron Katie that there can be no war with one person. So it only takes one person. I like the analogy that if your way of being in all relationships and in conflict is the cha-cha, 
all you have to do is learn a different dance. I mean, it is literally that simple, but it's so scary when it is changing our patterns of the heart because those protective mechanisms keep us safe, even if they keep us in pain, even if they keep us, you know, in a cycle that is not good for us, but it's familiar. And we have a real fear of the unknown. We have a real fear of getting to a place we've never been. But on the other side of my defensiveness, when I'm, you know, I remember being in a conflict with a friend and she said to me, you're being defensive right now. And I said with reluctance, let me tell you, I can see some truth in that. And all of a sudden I was on the other side of a conversation I'd never been in. All of a sudden I met with softness. She softened. She's like, whoa, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's one of those moments where they're like, uh, I've never seen this side of you. And that could be true of the dance of relationship. When we change from the cha-cha to, let's say, the two-step, the other person goes, oh, shit, I don't know the two-step. What is this that you're doing? And I, I like to give couples a agreed-upon phrase they can say when they're feeling really flooded is to say something like, I love us too much to continue right now. You know, for people who shut down, that is tough, right? Because we get so flooded, we can't even articulate words. I've certainly experienced that myself. And it's saying, I just need some space. I'll come back to you in, and you set the amount of time. Now, the rule is, it has to be within 24 hours. Because let's be honest, some of you will go nine years and be like, hey, remember when I told you I'd come back and talk to you about that shit? I'm ready now. And your relationship is in a dismal spot. That's because usually when we turn towards things like therapy or personal growth or books, it's already too late. There's so much built up. That's why coaching and therapy and courses and books start now. Start while you're good. That's the best time, you know? Like, it's not like uh, the best athletes in the world don't have coaches, even though they're the best athletes in the world. And that's the idea is keep good, be better, go from good to great. This is the commitment to the work. I mean, there's no shortcuts to any of this shit. There's no hacking. There's no, none of that. I mean, there's no fucking shortcuts to anything. There is no such thing as hacks. There is incredibly long paths to everything. We already know that. I just want to bring it back to when we change from the cha-cha to the two-step, we are usually afraid of how the other person might feel that we change the dance. We're afraid that they won't know it. We're afraid that we don't trust that as adults, it is our job to grow on our own. We can be invited to grow, but we have to, when you change the two-step and I'm doing the cha-cha, I have to look like that's a new dance I want to learn because I want to dance with you. I'm afraid to let go of what I know. I'm afraid that in this new dance, I won't know how to do it. I'm afraid of what will become. I'm afraid of of this other side of me turning to this space where I'm going to need to expand. I'm going to need to grow. I'm going to need to meet you. And that's, again, coming back to this space between fear and intuition. I think about it as if you wanted a new job, a promotion, and you got offered it. And I said to you, listen, what does it feel like when you get offered a job that is scary as shit? You're not sure that you're going to know how to do it, but you know you need to say yes to it. You know you need to, and you know you're going to be thrown right off the cliff, and you're going to have to figure it out, but you can't, you have to do it because it requires more of you. 
because it requires a different version of you. And every next level of everything is going to require a different version of you. The part of you that needed to be in the old pattern has to die. But what is born from that is an expanded version of you. Because when you throw yourself like that, you have to learn it. Sink or swim, you know, go to the island, burn the boat. You can't skydive and stay on the plane. You got to choose. You can't be addicted to your mediocrity and to your expansion at the same time. You know, in that, that's like, you know, I've had a friend who said to me, you can be committed to your dreams or your excuses, but not both. And I was like, fuck, that's the truth. Now, so when you get offered that type of job, we all most of the time can feel into intuitively, oh my God, yeah, I know what that feels like. Shit, I've been there. I said no to that before, but because I was scared. And so you learn. But if you get offered anything and it feels like you have to drink, it feels heavy, your stomach constricts, it feels like you need to say yes to them, but you don't want to. You're doing it because you have to, not because you want to or you choose to. You'll know that feeling when I'm talking about a job. Oh, I don't want to do that. That's keeping me the same. That's a demotion. That's staying the same. That's not inviting more of me. That's not moving me towards my ultimate goals. Just feel into those two feelings in the context of work and then think about your choices in things that are more personal that involve the heart. You can learn to tap into the part of you when your heart is not connected to it, the, the workplace, and feel into the relationship space and empower yourself to make more decisions. So for me, growing up in that environment was incredible. And it was also, you know, you take your learned things from family and you bring them forward into your patterns and relationships. So, you know, as I changed and learned about defensiveness and learned about stonewalling, that's what shutting down is called when you want to shut down, leave, not answer the phone, hang up. Criticism is saying like, you always, you never, we love absolutes, right? We don't want to give anyone any credit. Um, in the work, this is called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse by the Gottmans. Gottman's relationship research is brilliant. So the antidote to criticism, if you're a criticizer, is starting statements with I feel in my experience that gives space for your partner's experience or whoever you're speaking to. This is not just romantic relationship based. This is all forms of conflict. And then in contempt, that's things like eye rolling and faces of disgust. Contempt really builds a hierarchy in the relationship. I'm up here, you're down here, you disgust me. It's because there's so much pain that we create this hierarchy so they can't meet us. And this could be pain from previous relationships. So I would always recommend that if you experience a lot of contempt, uh, you go seek a therapist or coach who navigate repairing that relationship. There's a lot of clearing that tends to be needed. Um, with stonewalling, I said it's about asking for the space, but then returning in within 24 hours because your need for the space is exactly probably what triggers your partner in fear of abandonment and rejection. So you start to build trust over time that you will return. And I already gave you the antidote to defensiveness. So when I look at my childhood, there's a couple moments in time. I mean, I remember in junior high, I grew up, I went to French immersion school and in grade seven, the three schools merged into and joined the one I was at. So in Canada, we have junior high that starts in grade seven. And of course, that's right along when puberty is happening. And fuck, man, that's a hard time. That is such a hard time. And everyone's changing and going through hormones and social hierarchies are starting to be created. I never thought about those before about 
grade six, like who's cool, who's not. I didn't think about those things, but I started to think about that in grade seven when all the guys and that I'd been friends with started to, you know, like associate in a more higher status part of the group. And I didn't feel like I was really included in that anymore. And I started to get a little chubby too. And I remember sitting at a picnic table at my friend's birthday and this kid that I had gone to Cubs with, I didn't see him that often. He was more of an acquaintance, but he looked at me and he said, uh, you've become quite a porker, haven't you? And I just really remember my heart falling into my stomach and feeling like one of the first moments of total social rejection and shame. And, you know, it's not like when you're getting chubby, you don't know you're getting chubby. Like you can tell, you know, that's true. And it was just this like confirmation of all my greatest fears. And I developed a, I would say, unhealthy relationship with food for a brief time. But I would say that still navigates, you know, relationship with food is so, it's like our relationship to anything we struggle with is an opportunity to look at places of expansion, places we need to grow. You know, rock bottoms can be found in any avenue of your life. They don't have to be from doing heroin and ending up somewhere. They can be literally from losing your job, from a relationship ending, from being broke. They can be from being told you're a porker. And I developed really uh, that summer, I exercised a lot. I rode a mountain bike, my brother's mountain bike, and I went mountain biking all the time. And I didn't eat very much. And I remember my grandma was kind of chubby. And I remember she had slim fast. I don't know if that's only a Canadian thing, but it was basically like a powder that you mixed in a drink and it was foamy. So it made you feel full. And I started to take slim fast sort of secretly as a kid. And I lost lots of weight and I got fit not in a healthy way. And I remember showing up to school in grade nine on the first day and all of a sudden people wanted to talk to me and I was given higher status. And I remember thinking to myself like, fuck you, like I'm the same person. And I had a lot of resentment in my heart from that. It was hard for me to let people close for a while. Um, And then of course that's at the time that you start dating shit. I didn't know what I was doing in that avenue. And I didn't handle rejection well because I took so much of like what you think about me is what I think about me. That's been an ongoing reclamation, which comes through self-expression at the cost of maybe not belonging. You know, I've mentioned before in previous episodes that humans really have two needs. One is to belong, and the other one is to be authentic and self-expressed. But the desire for belonging, if, if authenticity threatens belonging, belonging generally wins. So this is this concept that will you abandon you to stay in a group, to keep a crowd, to, you know, keep connections, to keep this external validation that who you are is great. And this is the same hierarchy we built in relationship that says, if you're in a relationship, then that's confirmation that you're worthy of being chosen. But when you're single, we're going to ask you things like, why are you single? What's happened? Like you have some ailment. And, you know, like I certainly felt like an imposter in talking about relationships when I first started, because like, what are people going to say that like, you're not in a relationship. And I kept coming back to this truth that I know, I know consistently, which is just because you're in a relationship doesn't mean you're good at relationships. 
I mean, that's fucking obvious, right? Like there's lots of people in relationships that don't like each other at all. And so that imposter syndrome, whenever you want to do something that's different and expansive and talk about something that literally if you've gone through and healed, you are an expert at that pathway. And so whenever you get imposter syndrome, remember, you're always going to be an imposter in a new group, in a new area, in a new expansive way. Everything is going to require that you will step towards rejection to be yourself, to express yourself. That's true on a micro level in conflict, in conversations that are hard. And that's true on a macro level of your pursuits and your dreams and what you want to do with your life. So many of us, when we start doing a passion, something that comes from our pain, we want to help other people. You know, I think we become the teacher we needed. And when you do that, you are helping all the former versions of you that grew and expanded and learned the things that you now share. And I'm not saying that everyone has to start their own business and be an entrepreneur and teach all those things, but I'm saying on a personal level, that's important. It's important that when you start to share what you're doing or what you've learned, the there are certain certifications that are obviously important and that we're doing good quality work. But also remember that academia is a system and it's a system that was created by people who benefit from the system too. And just like school, just like, I'm not saying don't go to school, but what I am saying is you can learn how to be a master at anything, one, through being, and two, through the internet. You can learn anything, much like you can listen to this podcast or any podcast and start to experience forms of mastery in different areas of your life. And you can teach from that. You know, all the best teachers are just a chapter ahead, you know, but they're a chapter behind everyone. And I think that's the real gift of relationship is that we have to hold this space of humility, that we have to always be willing to be wrong. We have to always be willing to acknowledge that we could be better at something. And that's what keeps the teacher the student is because life will always humble you. I promise you that if you believe you're beyond anything, it will always humble you. And you'll be reminded that you are part of all of this. You're not beyond it. You're not a god. You're part of all of this. Okay, so I'm like a squirrel, right? We know this. But I'm coming back to a general idea. So I'm doing pretty good. I just want to acknowledge myself that sometimes my brain goes way off. And I'm like, shit, reel back. Here I am. So I'm back. So that was a really painful moment for me. I've spoken a lot about the painful moments I've had in relationship. I'll tell you some of the life ones. So I worked at a electronics store in sales when I was 17 to throughout college. So until I was about 21, I did my undergrad in finance so nothing to do with this. My favorite classes, of course, were psychology, but I didn't believe that you could make money doing that. You know, I was taught that you can't make money doing that unless you're like, you know, someone super famous or it's like what we say about artists. Oh, you can never make money doing that. Like find a real job. Oh, real jobs are the most boring jobs. In my opinion, not in yours. So I have, if I offended you and you have one of those jobs, you're like, I know what he's talking about. That's how much our conditioning affects us. So I did an undergrad in finance. I worked at this electronic store and I did tons of training on like how to close the sale, how to get people to change their behavior. And I was very fascinated in human behavior and changing human behavior. So I'd read books like how to win friends and influence people, how to get anyone to do anything. You know, and that it was fascinating, but it was more from a manipulative standpoint. And 
I worked when I graduated from college. I got a job in pharmaceutical sales. Again, you know, it was like really learning about influencing choice and behavior and picking between five competitors that are all pretty much the same. So how relationships and emotions really dictate change of behavior. You know, at the end of the day, people don't change behavior because they like a product better than another. It's because of what the product can bring them and how it makes them feel that makes them change their behavior. It's always emotional or that they might see themselves as a thought leader. So not taking on the new thing makes them no longer part of their identity, which is a thought leader. So there's so many influences, choice. But what I noticed was when I was 27, I got engaged. And when my engagement ended, I remember thinking to myself, like, how did I get here? Like, how did I get to this place where I'm so disconnected from myself that I ended up down this path that didn't feel like mine? I was afraid of getting engaged. I didn't really want to. I didn't know why, but I was taught things like men are just afraid of commitment. Men just surrender, you know, to it. And I thought, I think I'm supposed to be more excited about this. I think I'm supposed to feel different. But I was taught to always seek this idea of get married by 25 to 27, have kids by 30, have a house, take care of a family, be a provider. And I'd met the moment of making good enough money to be a provider. I had a house. I was driving a good car. I, I got engaged and I got to the moment I was always taught to want and I didn't want it anymore. I was really thinking about this the other day that sometimes the dream we had is not the dream we have. Like one time, sometimes we get it, we realize we didn't want it and then it was actually different and it's that we were taught to want that. There's a lot of confounding factors to my engagement um, that I don't have time to go into right now. But you know, there's, I was afraid of receiving love. That was a big thing of actually being loved. I didn't know that at the time, but intuitively I was drawn away from that relationship with a really wonderful woman. And that was really hard to do. Like, how do you let go of what you've been taught to want? And maybe I'm just afraid and I'm not now, now I'm a rebel to the system. Because when I ended the engagement, I faced a lot of criticism. I faced a lot of opinions. Oh, you're just afraid to grow up. You're Peter Pan. You're I was like, wait, you want emotionally intelligent men. And yet when I act on my own emotional experience, you tell me that it's not right. Like, fuck you. That pissed me off. You know, and I started to look back at my life and I thought, like, who is driving the car? Like, who made the choices here? Like, obviously I did. But why did I do an undergrad in finance? I don't even like finance. Like, why did I do all these things that are not from my heart? And it was the first time I thought about existentialism and why am I here? And I read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, which is an amazing book if you haven't read it. It was the first time I really thought, like, why am I here? There's got to be more to this. Maybe I'm not just here to be a provider and take care of family. Maybe I have a desire, a soul, a passion, a purpose. And that's where Create the Love was born. As I started to study relationships, because I thought, why am I so good at communicating everything but my feelings? That doesn't make sense. It's not a skill set issue. So I started to study, why do relationships end? Why do they last? Why do they last and, and they're fulfilling? Why do they not become fulfilling? I started to study all of this, read books. And then I was drawn to positive psychology, the study of really like, what makes people, great people great? What makes happy people happy? What is it about people who are optimistic? What is the science behind motivation and change? And as I was studying that, I was thinking like, 
why has no one told me truth about love and relationships that they're hard, that they end, that divorce is sometimes actually a good thing, that you know we use our kids between to to deal with our anger between divorced people, like we put parenting second to our own bullshit. That's crazy to me. But I started to think like, why is no one calling all this out? We're doing such a disservice to each other. And then I thought to myself like. As you start to read the research, you realize that the greatest predictor of the quality of your life is the quality of your relationship. But we're not learning this shit at school. We don't learn about money. We don't learn about nutrition. And we didn't learn about relationships. But these are one of the greatest contributors to our health is the quality of our relationships. And you can look at the Harvard Men's Study to see those results that it was the greatest predictor of your health at 80 was not your cholesterol, not your blood pressure. It was the quality of your relationships at age 50. That's insane. In relationships of all kinds, not just romantic, high-quality relationships are healing. High-conflict relationships hurt us because our nervous systems are always heightened. It's high-conflict couples. There's research to show that it's linked to leaky gut, which causes inflammation in your body. Inflammation is correlated to disease, autoimmune, all these different things. And so you think about all these correlations to emotion, and you start to see that emotion is really the elixir of life that learning how to navigate your feelings and feel seen by yourself. We often seek other people to see us. I want you to choose me. I want you to love me. I want you to accept me. But that's not what we want. We, they become the object of our healing, as opposed to saying, I want me to see me. I want me to accept me. I want me to love me. And when you do that, when you turn towards yourself with compassion and empathy and acceptance, you finally turn towards the five-year-old, the eight-year-old, the 10-year-old, whoever, whatever age, I don't care, but you turn towards it and you go, I see you. I see you. I acknowledge you. I acknowledge your pain. I acknowledge your suffering. I acknowledge your hurt. It wasn't easy. And I see you. And I'm here now. And I'm ready to claim you. I'm ready to take care of you. I'm ready to have your back. I've got you. Let's do this. It's a moment. It's a moment of complete transformation. This moment where we stop running from what we're avoiding and we meet it, we face it, and we hold it. That's a moment of grace and transcendence. And essentially what happens is we finally stop and we get present. We're not running from our past. We're now in the now. And from there, we can claim the truth. We can get connected back to the truth, which is, I do suffer sometimes. I do make mistakes. I'm hurting. I'm not always the best person. I don't choose well. I have been subcontracting my healing to the people I choose. And when you claim all of that and you connect to the truth, you can then say, what do I need to learn? Who do I need to be? And when you do that, you can start seeking information and knowledge so you can grow. And from there, you'll attract people who aren't there to fix you because you've already got you and they can just love you and vice versa. And that's a lot easier of a job because it's not a job, it's an honor. I think when we connect to the truth of the impermanence of ourselves and our lives, we change. You are promised no moments beyond this. If you're listening to this, these are all our last moments that we know.
And that's a beautiful thing, but it's a sad thing. But it's such a gift to be here right now, to listen, to talk, to share, to learn from one another. And when you think about that, that you are not promised next week, what would you do? Who would you be? How would you change? What would you say? Who would you cut off? Who would you invite in? That's when shit gets real. I've been really consuming a lot of this woman, Guganji, G-A-N-G-A-G-I. I've got a little more woo-woo and more woo-woo. And she's the one who said that these are all our last moments in one of the podcasts I listened to with her. But she also said something that I've shared on a previous podcast. She said, silence is who we are. I keep coming back. You're not your thoughts. You're not your past. You're not all that stuff. If you just let go of that, I mean, that sounds so contrived, right? To let go of the past. But really, we're holding on to something that doesn't exist. It conditions us because we allow its conditioning. We think our programming is our fate. But you get to choose your heart, your mind. They're your computer. You get to choose what programs you get to put in it now, what messages you want to keep and which ones you don't. The only way I think we need to be as humans is kind and generous. You know, that's it. If everything that you do comes from kindness and generosity to yourself and to others, you know, the key of great relationships is not making other people's needs matter more than your own, not making yours matter more than theirs, but honoring oneself as we choose another, as we, you know, if you choose anything in your life, it needs to be choosing you too. And that's a hard thing to get to. But that's where self-expression at the cost of not belonging claims, I don't love me because you love me. I don't love me because you accept me. I love me because I accept me. And there's a real fearful space that goes between my love requires self-abandonment to I actually need to build an island around me. I need to build boundaries around who I am. I mean, boundaries preserve wholeness. That's what they do. You're already whole. You just need some boundaries around you. And those are no's. Those are learning to trust yourself. Those are you stepping into who you are. And look, boundaries are negotiations. You might put down a boundary and say, oh, wait, that's not where I want that line. I want it to be here closer or further. They're learning. And what a gift it is, isn't it? What a gift it is to learn to be here. When I was 25, I broke my leg and I was playing soccer. And I went into this hard tackle with a guy and we both broke our our legs. And we were both laying there and I got brought to the hospital. And they did a surgery on me five days later. It was a closed fracture, a pretty simple fracture, closed meaning the bone didn't come out. And they didn't really need to do, uh, put it, they put a nail, it's called an intermedullary nail. They put it down my tibia. And it was originally a tool that they used in the war to get people back in the field sooner. Well, one, I wasn't playing professional soccer. You know, that wasn't happening. I didn't need to be back on the field in seven months because my salary of zero dollars dictated that. But that, you know, this is where sales reps, so a sales rep convinced them to use an IM nail. So I got the nail. Well, when you get the nail put in, they tap it in the top of your tibia and it pushes through the bone marrow and it pushes the bone marrow out. 
And they call that fat showering, that it comes out of the bone and it goes into your bloodstream. And uh, there's about a 4% chance, I believe that was the number they told me, that I could get a fat embolism, that I could get an embolism from the marrow. And I got one in my lung. And I wasn't breathing well. Um, for those of you that are medical, my SATs, which is the amount of oxygen I breathe, that is in my blood, which is usually around 98%, 99% for regular people. It was down in the 60s, so I had one of those little nose oxygen things on, and they were worried that I was going to die. And I had about 40% chance of fatality, and that's what the doctor told me. You might die, you have like 40% chance of fatality. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I was only supposed to have four, and now you're telling me 40, so if I already hit the four, 40 sounds pretty likely, fuck. And I was laying in the hospital hallway at 2 a.m. being sent to a CT scan. And I was alone because it was late and it was just like a last minute thing that I was being brought for a CT. And I remember looking at the ceiling and thinking to myself, like, I'm not ready to go. Like, I have so much I want to do and be. And I thought to myself, like, at the time I was chewing tobacco. I know, hold your applause. I was chewing tobacco. And I thought to myself, like, how ignorant for me to do something that kills me faster than I need, you know, and then that lessens my lifespan. So I quit in that moment. I never chewed again. Everything that was important to me became very clear in that moment. And my breakup has brought me to that same feeling, you know, and to the beauty of this work, but the impermanence and the urgency to be here, to do whatever it is that you want to do. Create the Love was really just born, man, I think the first post was December of 2014. And it was after breakup. It was actually, I'd been wanting to share and start a blog and I did. I went back to school. I studied positive psychology. I started writing about the things I was learning. And I went through this breakup and the woman managed social media profiles for different companies, different businesses. And she said, maybe you should start an Instagram account. And I was like, eh, I don't know what that looks like. But when we broke up, I started one and I wrote from that space of pain. I mean, gosh, breakups are such a good fuel to grow yourself, to move yourself, to use that grief and anger and all the feels, the joy, the excitement, the possibility and become who you are. And I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, if you go back, there's like freaking spelling errors, you know. There's things I said then that I wouldn't say now because I've grown and I've changed. We love to hold people prisoner to who they were, don't we? Because we do that with ourselves. But, you know, I look back and I think like, you couldn't edit posts, so there's spelling. You know, you'd post it and you'd be like, fuck, there's a spelling error, shit. But you couldn't go, you either had to choose to delete the post or start it, or uh, just leave it there and suffer. But man, I look back and I'm like, wow, it took a long time to grow it to where it is today, to build who I am and to continue to. You know, a lot of people, when we see success or we see what we define as success, we think like, oh, they just got lucky. I have never missed a day posting since the day I launched my Instagram. Whenever anyone asks me what they need to do to build something, I tell them because there are really no secrets. It's just consistency. It's just consistency. And showing up for myself, 
But part of the negotiation is that you say, I'm going to subscribe to this podcast because you're going to produce content. I'm going to give you my time for your contribution. And time to me is the most valuable asset. And I'm so grateful that you exchanged time for this. That means so much to me. And when you create a business, you're saying, if you, in exchange of whatever you give me, your time, your presence, your money, I'm going to give you something back. You have to show up. You have to keep doing it. And look, like, as I said earlier, we're always going to be the imposter in a new room. You just have to decide that that is actually who you are, is that you're forever living on your edge, that you move towards the unknown. The unknown is where you live. Certainty is great sometimes, but certainty is not where growth is. If you're certain about how, how a conversation is going to go, you're not having a new conversation. You're playing safe. And you know, for me, I actually leap towards things that scare me now. I've had so many conversations that are scary and I still have them. And I do things with that feeling that I said to you before to check if your intuition is. Am I afraid to do this thing or start this thing because I'm going to have to grow and I'm going to have to learn? Or am I afraid to do it just because it's not a good fit? The more you listen to your intuition, the more you can trust it and it will guide you. But you have to leap. You can't become who you are without letting go of who you are not. And that is the death of oneself and the birth of who you are. I'm really grateful that I got to share all of this with you today. I know there's not always a fluid flow, but I feel like there was a fluid flow here. You know, wherever you listen to this, if this resonated with you, I'd love for you to share it. And wherever you listen to this, if you could leave it a five-star review and a written review, that's super helpful. And I appreciate you. And I acknowledge you for what you're going through and for being human and for facing all the things. Being a human's hard, and that's okay, because that's what makes it delicious. Life can be great even when it's not great if we make space for all the feels. So thank you for showing up and I'll keep doing it too because you inspire me. Mm-hmm.